we are beginning a new series called Learning to Live uh, that we will preach through and then also um, walk through in small groups. Our opening passage to begin this series comes out of Matthew 6. And so I'd ask you to stand if you're able to reverence the reading of God's word. It comes from Matthew 6, beginning in verse 25. And Jesus said, Therefore I say to you, don't worry about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink or about your body, what you'll wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the sky. They don't sow seed or harvest grain or gather crops into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth much more than they are? Who among you by worrying can add a single moment to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? Notice how the lilies in the field grow. They don't wear themselves out with work. They don't spin cloth. But I say to you that even Solomon in all his splendor wasn't dressed like one of these. If God dresses grass in the field so beautifully, even though it's alive today and tomorrow it's thrown to the furnace, won't God do much more for you, you people of weak faith? Therefore, don't worry and say, what are we going to eat? Or what are we going to drink? Or what are we going to wear? Gentiles long for all these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Instead, desire first and foremost God's kingdom and God's righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, stop worrying about tomorrow, because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, my name is Justin. I'm on the pastoral team here at Christ City. And um, as Matthew said, um, we're, we're excited to announce that today we're, we're kicking off 2020 with a, with a church-wide effort. We haven't done this before as Christ City Church. Um, those who were with us uh, almost four years ago. Uh, when we were still part of the district church, may remember this, but over the next three months, uh, from now until the end of March, we're going to be participating in an experience called Learning to Live. It's what we'll be preaching through. It's uh, what almost all of our small groups will be going through. It's going to be a collaborative and communal movement in the same direction, and that direction is, is toward Jesus. Now, obviously, uh, the hope is that we're always all going toward Jesus, not just this season, but sometimes we, we scatter and we do things our own way, and I don't mean that in a bad way. We just we kind of, you know, go where we, where we feel called. And then other times, like now, communally as a church, we gather and we try to do something together. And so let me, let, let me explain a little bit about what learning to live is. Uh, for those uh, who are like me and, and, and like bullet points, it's, uh, it's an 11-week discipleship project whose goal is to provide three things. First, a roadmap for the spiritual journey a roadmap for the spiritual journey. Oftentimes there can be a view, particularly in American evangelicalism, that conversion, that is becoming a Christian or saying the sinner's prayer or inviting Jesus into your life or however you think of that moment, that that moment is the end goal. It's not. It's the beginning. It is a beginning. It's a starting point. It's the genesis of a new chapter, a new adventure, a new journey of transformation. And there is no ceiling, no limit, no cap on how high we can grow or how deep we can go with Jesus. So that's uh, one thing that Learning to Live is, is aiming to provide. Number two, some basic tools for the spiritual life. We are not the first people to follow Jesus. There are things we can do to grow, things Christians have done for hundreds of years, spiritual practices, in some circles, spiritual disciplines, 
Now, this is not to say that we do these things in order to earn God's favor and grace, not at all. But if God's grace to us is the starting point, then the process of sanctification, to use that theological term, that process of being made holy, of growing more and more like Jesus, while there are things we can do to heighten our awareness of God's activity and God's presence and to align ourselves better with the Holy Spirit. And sometimes those things are actually about getting ourselves out of the way. So we're going to learn some of those tools, some tools that, that Christians have been doing for hundreds of years. And then the third, the third goal is to provide unified movement in the same direction as a church. Uh, what we've learned is that it's the moments where we collectively and communally engage in something together, both on Sundays and in small groups and during the week, that we gain momentum, whether that's in vulnerability and authenticity in our groups, whether that's in engagement with our neighbors and in our neighborhoods, whether that's in a spiritual openness here on Sunday mornings. Uh, I think if you were here with us in the fall when we were going through the whole story series, we caught a glimpse of that, when we, we, we were sort of moving together in, in, in sync. And so we want to move together toward a common goal that is being formed in the likeness of Jesus. We want to learn together a common language. Uh, there are certain terms that, that are thrown around that everybody has their own definition of, and you can still have those definitions, but it might be useful for us all to have something we can respond to and reflect on and say, this is how I feel about this. Uh, this is how I'm, I'm, I'm uh, uh, defining this. And so we want you to know some of the ways that, that we use the terms like sin and gospel and kingdom and love and so on. And then we want to undergo together common experiences. Uh, together with your small group and the rest of the church, uh, part of learning to live are three weekend experiences, uh, a storytelling weekend, a prayer weekend, and a service weekend, which we'll learn more about in the coming weeks. And the reason that experiences are important is that transformation is caught as well as taught. That it, transformation is about imitation as well as information. So that's the bullet point version of learning to live. Uh, if you prefer the story or the testimony version, uh, Jamie Staley is going to come up in, in a moment, J just right now, he's going to come up and get the mic. <laughs> J no, that's good. Jamie's one of our small group leaders and a learning to live veteran. He and his wife Dana moved to D.C. actually into our basement right as we were starting learning to live the last time in, to in 2016. And um, the couples group, which they now lead, uh, is, was also one of the, the two small groups that helped to pilot the revised edition last, last January and offered some invaluable feedback. So please welcome Jamie. Yeah. Hi, everyone. My name's Jamie. My wife, Dana, and I are small group leaders in the church. Uh, we went through this study about a year ago and found it to be really impactful for our group, uh, both individually and for our group as a whole. Uh, for me, one of the biggest benefits was getting to create these really life-giving habits that we see in the life of Jesus, uh, whether he's out serving the poor or walking with his disciples. There's so many different practical things, and this study really gave us a framework for uh, applying those things to our own life. So for me, one of the biggest things was the weekly spiritual practice that the study offered. And um, there were so many different things. It was kind of at the beginning of each week, it would be a theme that you would be going through as a group. And for our group, one of the things that stuck out the most was um, becoming aware of God's story and how God is at work in the stories of the people around us as well. And uh, one of the highlights for us was we actually got a cabin up in the Shenandoah and went away for the weekend and got to hear each other's stories and hear just the joys and the the pains uh, that have helped bring each of us to where we are now and being aware of that and also helped us to be more intentional about 
walking with each other through as we continue forward in our spiritual journey and really cultivating these spiritual habits and practices and just living out the kingdom and living out Jesus's life uh, together as a group. So uh, that was a great weekend. We spent time hiking and playing games and just in, enjoying each other and uh, in doing that together as a group. So I guess uh, one piece of advice would be you're really going to get out of this what you put into it. It is kind of a lot of work. Uh, <laughs> you have a reading every single day. There's little homework assignments that Justin's written in there. There's a whole wide variety of quotes from the most yeah, broad spectrum of rock stars to, to saints. <laughs> and it's, it's really a great study. And, um, but it is a lot of work, and you'll really get out of it what you put into it. If you're missing most of the readings, uh, it's really hard to engage with your group during the discussion time. And, uh, but if you do put that work into it, I think it really has a lot of benefit for your, for your group and for your, you individually, so. Thank you. Um, so let me uh, explain a few logistical pieces before I jump into the, the meat of the message. Um, a few things to do, uh, pick up a workbook. They're all available on the connection table after the service. They're only in hard copy at this, at this point. Um, they're right alongside the, the small group leaders uh, brochure, or they will be alongside the small group leaders who are there, the small group, leader bro the small group brochures, and um, there are also um, bags for the needy that uh, Teen City is putting together. And they're putting together packets for folks who are uh, experiencing uh, particularly homelessness or in need of um, help, at this in especially during this season. And so um, they're packing that for their very first gathering as Teen City. And so those um, bags are going to be available on that connection table if you want to grab one to, to, to give. Um, the books, the workbooks that look like this, um, they cost uh, $10 to print. Uh, but we want everyone to be able to participate, so what we're asking for is a recommended contribution. Um, there's a, a link on the, on the screen where you could donate if you're able to and feel led to, but, um, but we don't want uh, the financial cost to be a barrier to anybody. So you can take as many as you want. And if you feel led to give and to pay for your own version, or if you want to support somebody else, you want to uh, give so that somebody else can, can have a, a copy, uh, you can do that online. And the, the reason that we're doing this is that there are a, a variety of folks here uh, from different in different financial situations. And if you are not in a position to give right now, that's okay. That's where you are. Um, but if you are able to give right now, and if God's blessed you uh, with enough to pay for someone else's book or a couple people's book, then I would encourage you to do that. This is what church is. It's supporting each other, including tangibly, financially. So pick up a book. Um, they're all on the table outside. They all look the same, and they have my name on them, so write yours on them. <laughs> Otherwise, I'm just going to take yours. <laughs> um, number two, find a small group online, um, particularly if you, if you haven't connected with one yet. Um, like I said, there will be small group leaders outside that, they can, that can chat with you. Um, if you're not able to join a small group at this point, that's also understandable. Don't feel like you can't participate, that you can't grab a workbook, because we'll be preaching through this as well. And that, and that if this is the season that you're in where um, jumping into a small group is really hard or just logistically difficult, um, feel free to walk alongside us. Um, Carolyn and I will be leading an online small group. And the reason that we wanted to do this was, one, because we're realizing the challenge of um, getting outside of our home is we have a young kid. And so we wanted to make this available, particularly for folks for whom it is difficult to, to get out, whether that's because they are 
they ha have young kids, whether because they're single parents or because they, um, we have some friends who have some severe allergies, and so we, we just kind of invited them. We're like, hey, we're, we don't let uh, the logistics be an obstacle to community, all right? Um, there's always an opportunity, and we're excited to, to launch this. We have no idea how it's going to go, because this is the first time we're doing it. Um, but we're excited for that, and so I want to encourage you to, um, to seek out uh, a small group. And then number three, as Jamie queued up um, so ominously, be ready for the devotionals. <laughs> Um, there, there are five days of material to read and reflect on each week, and, and you can take as much or as little time as you want, but uh, as Jamie said, what you put into it is what you're going to get out of it. Um, you can work on it for as much as a half an hour a day. There are five days. I did five days because you, you have, you get, it gives you a couple days to catch up. Um, we, as we were going through, you know, there were folks who were like, oh, I did it in the 15 minutes before small group, and I'm like, That's, you know, it is what it is. Your life is what it is. Um, and I don't look at this as homework. I look at this as soul work. <laughs> All right? Soul work. It's, uh, you know, if you, if you think of your goal as cutting down a tree, think about, about this work as sharpening the axe. Uh, if you think of your goal as being more and more present to God in every moment of every day, I think this will help. I think this will, will the, the questions and these readings will hopefully um, spur you to be more aware of that. Um, so if you have time in the morning, uh, to do that, um, then do that in the morning. I would suggest finding a regular time, a regular rhythm. Um, but if you're busy getting ready for work or getting your kids out the door or getting, getting to school and mornings are just impossible, then you know maybe just read through, skim through the material, and then come back later uh, before you, you go to bed and do it in the evening. So whatever works, I would, I would say whatever works with your schedule, but I actually want you to try to make time for this. And so that might require a little effort. Um, so... Uh, if you have any questions about any of this, you can talk to, to your small group leader, you can talk to me or to Matthew. Um, Nikki is, is leading the, the, the kids in Teen City through this as well, and so we're actually, we are going through this all as a church, and it's very, um, quite exciting. So that's, that's it with the logistics. So in the time I have remaining today, I want to talk about one of the first questions from Learning to Live. And that question is, what do you want? What do you want? It's a question that Jesus asked. And I want to start by reading something to you. It goes like this. There is within us a fundamental dis-ease, an unquenchable fire that renders us incapable in this life of ever coming to full peace. This desire lies at the center of our lives, in the marrow of our bones, and in the deep recesses of our soul. We are not easeful human beings who occasionally get restless Serene persons who once in a while are obsessed with desire. The reverse is true. We are driven persons, forever obsessed, congenitally diseased, living lives of quiet desperation, only occasionally experiencing peace. Desire is the straw that stirs the drink. What do you think about that? Does it seem like an accurate description of life? Do you disagree with it? What's your first reaction? I want you to turn to your neighbor and for just a couple minutes share. What's your first reaction to this quote? So the first, time, the first time I read the quote, I didn't like it. First time I read the quote, I didn't like it. My, re my first reaction was, no, as a Christian, I should be at peace and rest because of Jesus. Right? There are all those passages that, um, that are about subduing desire and submitting my drive to God and, and to seek the kingdom and to seek the spirit. Um, that was my first reaction. Maybe it was the word desire. 
which I think particularly if you've, you've spent any time in, in evangelical Christianity often carries negative connotations. It's about lust or it's about being wanted or it's about wanting something you shouldn't want. Right? After all, it was, it was because Eve desired the fruit in the garden of the tree in the Garden of Eden that, that, that things went wrong, right? And, and doesn't God tell Cain to beware of his sinful thoughts, saying, its desire is for you, but you must master it? Isn't one of the commandments of the law, the Ten Commandments, not to covet, not to desire your neighbor's stuff? And what about the parable that, uh, uh, that Jesus tells about the sower who sows some seed that begins to grow quickly, but then the cares of the world and the lure of wealth and the desire for other things come in and choke the word, and it yields nothing? Desire is, is clearly a bad thing, right? Well, here's the tricky thing. In each of the four instances I just mentioned, with Eve, with Cain, with the commandment not to covet, and with, with Jesus' parable, the word that's translated as desire in English is a different word in Hebrew and Greek. Four different words. Four different nuances, all translated as desire. I picked four references from the Bible that all talk about desire in a negative sense. That's called proof texting. Picking the verses that support the point I'm trying to make. What I didn't mention was any of the positive references to desire in the Bible. When David's last words praise God for blessing my desire. Or when the psalmist writes, oh Lord, you will hear the desire of the meek. Or how about this one? Take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. That's all in the Bible too. Let me read a little bit more from the book I, I, I quoted from. It's called The Holy Longing written by Father Ron Rollheiser. And he says, whatever the expression, everyone is ultimately talking about the same thing, an unquenchable fire, a restlessness, a longing, a disquiet, a hunger, a loneliness, a gnawing nostalgia. I feel that one as I get older, the, the nostalgia piece of it. Uh, oh, <laughs> There's more to come. There's more to come. A wildness that cannot be tamed, a congenital, all-embracing ache that lies at the center of human experience and is the ultimate force that drives everything else. This dis-ease is universal. Desire gives no exemptions. In other words, we all feel desire. We all desire something. We all know longing as a soul companion, whether we long for desire, whether it's a romantic relationship, whether it's good friends, whether it's a great job, whether it's to be known whether it's more money, less fear, more love, better quality of life, lower cost of living. And you see, it's, it's easy for us to separate desire from spirituality, to think that desire is one thing and, and spirituality is, is, is something else at, at a more serious level. Or, or that spirituality is just about Sundays and small groups or about how we can quote scripture or how we can give to charity. But this is the first point I want to make. A point that Rollheiser makes in his, his book very bluntly, and I've used this quote before, spirituality is not separate from our desire. Spirituality is what we do with our desire. Spirituality is not separate from our desire. It's what we do with our desire. Whatever occupies your thoughts, whatever keeps you up at night, whatever ways you live out those strong passions and emotions you have from the, the things you buy to the things you do to the things you say to the people you spend time with, all of that is your spirituality. All of that reveals what kingdom we desire. 
And by kingdom here, I mean simply a vision of what we want life to look like. What we think life should look like. We might desire the kingdom of God, where God rules and reigns in every life and every sphere of life. That might be what drives us, a vision of, of what God desires our lives and our life to be like. Or we might desire your own kingdom, where you rule and reign in your life and every sphere of your life. We all desire some king, some vision of what is good and what the world ought to look like, some narrative that gives meaning and structure to the way we order our lives. We all do. Or maybe instead of kingdom, uh, I could put it in terms of worship. Uh, writer David Foster Wallace, who grew up with atheist parents, uh, said this in a commencement address at Kenyon College in 2005. He said, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what we worship. Or as Bob Dylan sings, you got to serve somebody. So if you looked at your life as it is right now, with all the people you hang out with, with all the relationships you're trying to keep up, with all the motivations that drive you and all the anxieties that beset you, what would you say if I asked you, what are you really worshiping? What are you really worshiping? Not what do you know you're supposed to say that you worship, Jesus, God, but what your life evidences as the answer to that question. What would you say if I asked you, what kingdom are you really seeking? What would you say if I asked you, what do you really love? What do you desire? What do you want? What do you feel strongly about? What do you orient your life around? Is it the opinions of others? Is it control? Is it satisfying your wants and appetites? Is it being the best in your field? Because your life is your message. Your life is right now, the moments you have right now. So what does your life, as it is right now, say about what you really want? What you value? What you love? Because it is what we desire that makes our desire good or bad. It is what we long for that makes our longing good or bad. It is what, it is whom we worship that makes our worship good or bad. And if that's the case, discipleship is not a piece of your life. Discipleship is your life. We're all being formed and shaped in some fashion after some goal. We are all being discipled. The question is, by what and by whom? Scripture passage for today comes from Matthew 6, from the Sermon on the Mount, one of Jesus' most well-known teachings. Uh, Matthew read it earlier, and the first thing I want to point out is the word that begins this passage. Therefore. Therefore. Therefore, meaning because of, because of this reality, this is how you should respond. The reality that Jesus has been talking about before, uh, before the passage that we read, the reality that Jesus has been talking about in the Sermon on the Mount is one in which the, the ever-present, ever-loving God is closer than the air we breathe. And so Jesus says, don't show off in your giving 
or in your praying or in your fasting. In other words, don't make it about yourself because God sees what you do in secret and will reward you for that. Don't store up temporary treasures on earth because as you prioritize the things of God, God will reward you with everlasting treasures in heaven. Don't be concerned about running after wealth because God sees you and knows you and will provide for you. And therefore, Jesus says, not to worry about life, not to be anxious about being provided for, not to get stressed about what you'll eat or drink or wear. Why? Well, because Jesus knew his listeners. The, the people he was preaching to were not well off. Most of them were, were poor. Most of them were living in a subsistence culture with very little above the bare necessities. They had plenty of reason, plenty of reason to worry about their basic needs being met. They spent the majority of their time worrying about how they could secure food and clothing and shelter. And their ability to secure those things depended on factors that were largely and often out of their control. Both natural factors like seasonal rains or droughts and famine and human factors like taxes or landowners from whom they rented their plots and to whom they uh, had to pay a fee. And so, so if something went awry, a natural disaster or a particularly vindictive landlord, they could find themselves with no way to feed themselves and no way to take care of their families. Jesus knew his listeners, and he knew what was driving them. He knew what they longed for. He knew what was occupying their thoughts. And it's not that these concerns weren't valid. They were very real. But this is what Jesus says to them. Your heavenly Father knows what you need. Your heavenly Father knows what you need. Instead, desire first and foremost God's kingdom and God's righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Jesus knows us. And Jesus knows you and me. He knows what drives us, what we long for, what occupies our thoughts. And it's not that our concerns aren't valid, but this is what Jesus says to us. Your heavenly Father knows what you need. This is what God says to you. Your heavenly Father knows what you need. Instead, desire first and foremost God's kingdom and God's righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Or in the old King James Version, seek ye first the kingdom of God. Now, in, in saying this, Jesus doesn't mean for us to have the kingdom of God in first place on our list of priorities. He means for us to allow the kingdom to determine our list and to define our priorities. That's what it means to seek the kingdom first. He doesn't want us to look at this in a linear way, you know, as if it's number one kingdom, number two uh, food, number three internet. No, you know, it's, it's not about a list of priorities. It's that we're invited to seek the kingdom as that on which everything else hinges, as that which defines everything else. Seek the kingdom as the shaping, ordering, meaning, and purpose-giving vision of your life. In the message paraphrase, Eugene Peterson translates, seek first the kingdom as this. Steep your life in God reality, God initiative, God provisions. Where do we use that, that verb, steep? For tea. Just let it sit. Just let it sit there and soak it up. Steep your life. In God reality, God initiative, God provisions. 
Theologian and philosopher Dallas Willard explains it this way. When we seek the kingdom of God, we are seeking more and more to allow God to be present in everything that we are and everything that we do. And we allow him to act and overrule and guide and help us become what he intended us to be. Seeking is fundamental. Seeking the kingdom means setting as the orienting vision for our lives, life as God desires for it to be, and then lining up all the practical implications of that. In, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about anger and lust and what we choose to think about. He talks about money and how we choose to use it. He talks about what we worry about and what drives us because, because the kingdom was never intended to just be a theological or a philosophical concept. The kingdom of God is always about real life. It's always about what God is doing in real life, in our real lives. I, I, want, I, want, to be, I want to be the best pastor I can be. And that means I, I train and practice to be good at things I think a pastor should be good at. Listening to people, listening to God, walking with Jesus so I can point others to Jesus, drawing a, a picture with my words and with my actions and my attitudes of what life in the kingdom can look like. I want to be the best husband I can be. And that means training and practicing to be good at the things I think a husband should be good at. Loving my wife, listening to her, spending time with her, saying sorry quickly, forgiving generously, learning to communicate better. We are still working on that last one. <laughs> I want to be the best father I can be, the best friend, the best citizen, the best neighbor. And each of those roles require me to, to train and practice in different ways, sometimes intentionally with planning and preparation, and sometimes Sadly, more often than not, in hindsight, by learning from the mistakes we've made. These goals, these visions, they're, they're smaller parts of the bigger goal. The larger vision of, of becoming who God made me to be, of following in the footsteps and being, of, and being formed by the likeness of Jesus. The one who lived a more fulfilled, more meaningful, more loving, more God-reflecting life than anyone has ever lived seeking God's kingdom here on earth in my life and in every sphere of my life, in every life and in every sphere of life. Do I do these things perfectly? Absolutely not. Do I get it wrong all the time? Do I lose sight of the vision? Do I miss the forest for the trees more often than I would like? And that's why, that's why community is important. That's why God intended the full life the full life that Jesus says he came to bring, God intended the full life to be lived and experienced in community so that we encourage each other and we remind each other of and we hold each other accountable to what is true right now and what is truly good. This is what David the psalmist wrote in Psalm 63. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. Your faithful love is better than life itself. I'm fully satisfied, as with a rich dinner. My mouth speaks your praise with joy on my lips whenever I ponder you on my bed, whenever I meditate, you on, the uh, meditate on you in the middle of the night. My whole being clings to you. Thirsting, fainting, being satisfied, meditating on the love and goodness of God, even while falling asleep, clinging 
There's no doubt about the guiding light of David's life. There's no doubt about what he seeks first, what he strives after. His hunger, his thirst, his desire, his longing, his yearning is for God. Your faithful love is better than life. This is what I believe with all of my being, the reality I try to live in and the reality I try to live out. That as human beings, as those made in the image of God, made to be like and to be with and to be in God, our deepest desire and our deepest longing, the most fulfilling vision for life is found in God. That's what I believe. St. Augustine put it this way, you made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Our hearts are restless because God has made, him, made us for himself. This is the witness of the Bible. This is the witness of hundreds of lives lived over thousands of years. This is the witness of the church. Billions of lives transformed by the power of the Spirit of God. This is the witness of my own experience that when I seek God and his kingdom and his righteousness in my life, there is freedom and there is justice and there is grace and there is love and there is community and there is intimacy there. And it is not perfect. And it is not everything that I need it to be. But it is a taste of the goodness of God. We were made for God. Our home is in God and with God. Our souls were made to find their rest in God. And they will, they will relentlessly seek fulfillment in everything else until, unless and until they find their rest in Him. That's why Jesus says the greatest commandments are to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. Because love is the DNA of all creation. Love is the grain of the universe. The love of God, the self-giving love of the eternal trinity, the other-serving love of the Father, Son, and Spirit. It's what we learn from Jesus. Jesus' life was an embodiment of seeking the kingdom first. It was an example of what it means to love God fully and to love neighbor fully. Jesus practiced what he preached. He took time to love and heal and care for people to confront injustice and oppression, to challenge the repressive systems of the day. And ultimately, he gave his life on the cross so that sin might be defeated and so that all of humanity and all of creation might be redeemed and restored to God. Jesus lived the best, the fullest life any human being has ever lived. And he died the most redemptive death any human being has ever died. Jesus is the incarnation of pure love, of what it means to want the right things in the right way at the right time, of what love can look like at its most fulfilled. That's why I wrote this discipleship project, because I want to learn to live, I want us all to learn to live like Jesus, with Jesus, and in Jesus. Because I believe that if Jesus lived the best life that has ever been lived, then, well, I want to learn to live like Jesus, right? My teacher, my example. If Jesus knows the depth of human temptation and suffering and is also the embodiment of the wisdom of God, I want to learn to live with Jesus, my friend, my counselor. And if Jesus is the eternal God and Savior whose sacrifice has made me whole and new, I want to learn to live in Jesus, the light of life. Jesus invites us all into a new way of living, of seeing, of hearing, of noticing, 
And it will, require, it will require us to rearrange some things, to reorder some things, to revise some things, to rethink some things, to repent of some things. It's going to be a process, a journey over time of learning and relearning, of falling down and being lifted back up. George MacDonald was a Scottish author and a poet and a minister who lived in the 19th century. And in one of his books, he tells the story of, of a woman who experiences a terrible sorrow. And he writes uh, that she said, I wish I'd never been made, she exclaimed petulantly and bitterly, to which her friend quietly replied, my dear, you're not made yet. You're only being made. And this is the maker's process. And the first step on this journey, first response to this invitation, a spiritual practice, if you will, is this. Be honest. Be honest. Specifically, be honest about your answer to that question, what do you want? Be honest with God, because unless we are honest about what we long for and, and we share that with God, we can't have an authentic relationship with Him. Be honest with others, because unless we're honest with one another and about you know, what we long for and what we really want, we cannot have an authentic relationship with each other. And be honest with yourself. Be honest with yourself about what you really want. Be honest with yourself about how your way of living is going. Be honest with yourself about whether you really do seek the kingdom of God or whether you even want to and why. Be honest about what it is that makes you want the things you want, about what drives you, about where your drives come from. Be honest with yourself about what you seek and why you seek it. You know, I grew up with such a darkened understanding of desire, a, a fear of listening to the yearnings of my heart, an inability to distinguish between good desire and bad desire that I thought the life of faith was just about doing everything I was supposed to do, about living as I should about beating myself up when I allowed myself to feel something too strongly or gave in a temptation because I thought that strong desire could only lead to bad things. And I remember in college when my mentor read me a verse that would change my life. It's Ecclesiastes 11.9. From the message version, it says this, You who are young, make the most of your youth. Relish your youthful vigor. Follow the impulses of your heart. I'd never heard that before. Follow the impulses of your heart. And if something looks good to you, pursue it. But know also, know also that not just anything goes. You have to answer to God for every last bit of it. It was that freedom and that responsibility together that liberated me. Now, obviously, those of us who are older aren't off the hook. But I do think the writer of Ecclesiastes knew something about how, particularly when we're younger, we might struggle to know, how, you know what to do with all of the impulses and desires of our hearts and struggle to rightly understand how God fits in. But if we catch a vision for something, if we really catch a vision for something, it, it, it reorders our lives. It, it reshapes our thinking. It realigns and reshuffles what we're willing to sacrifice. Jesus said, and I believe that the kingdom of God is the most compelling, 
most intriguing, most noble vision because it is the vision of the one who created the heavens and the earth, who made us, knows us inside and out, the one who lived and loved as fully and truly as we were made to, the one who is, the one who is making all things new and right. Jesus said the kingdom was worth everything. He lived his life to prove it was true, and he gave his life so that we could experience its truth. And so this is my prayer. And I pray that this would become your prayer too, not just, not just the things you say in the morning or in the evening, but what your heart and soul communicate with every beat and every breath, every moment of every day and every situation and every conversation in the face of every injustice and every wrong and in the joy of every blessing. Oh God, you are my God. I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Seek first the kingdom of God as that which defines your life and all the things you need will be given to you as well. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.